0: And indeed, here you are. So glad you're here this morning. Uh, If you brave the snow, appreciate that. If you're new this morning, you should know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 through 3. At Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And so right now we're preaching through the first three chapters of Genesis. And this morning we have landed at the end of Genesis chapter 2. We love taking the Word of God and preaching to it verse by verse because then the Word of God sets the agenda. And sometimes that means that we preach on hard things, but those hard things are always encouraging. And in fact, I would say today's passage is one of those examples. So let's pray and ask that God be gracious to us and then we'll get to it. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning with your people. And even in the midst of a snow that was maybe a bit unexpected, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to gather and worship your name to consider the fact that your glory will spread to all the nations and that one day we will be gathered around the throne with people from every tribe, language, nation, and people worshiping you. This morning we pray that we would be faithful to preach your word and I pray that I would be faithful to handle your word correctly. I pray that I would be able to speak in a way that brings glory to you, that I would be faithful to preach in a way that highlights your greatness. That I'd also be a person who's filled with your spirit and speaking grace and truth this morning. As we tackle what's become a controversial topic in our culture, just pray that you would give us the grace to handle it well, and yet the firmness and the courage to be able to say what your word says. And so, Lord, please be gracious to us and merciful to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, sometimes truth is indeed stranger than fiction. Case in point, September 2021, a group of at least 70 English women participated in a wedding ceremony in which each of them married a tree. Apparently, the purpose of the ceremony was to draw attention to the trees, which were scheduled to be removed as part of a building project. But motivation aside, there was an actual wedding ceremony. The ceremony involved an officiant and even a formal exchange of vows. Now, as you might imagine, the trees didn't have much to say during their portion of the vows. But someone did go to the trouble of writing vows on their behalf and then speaking for them. We don't know how the trees felt about the ceremony because they are trees, but it seems that the brides took the ceremony pretty seriously. To quote one of the brides, and believe me, I'm quoting here, I'm not making this up, to get married to a tree is an absolute privilege. It's not just a sentimental gesture, it's highly significant and symbolic. Trees are pure examples of unconditional love, which fits in so beautifully with the whole idea of marriage. Marriage is for life, breathing is for life. Now that's a quote. Like I said, truth is stranger than fiction. But lest you think these English ladies are alone in their marriage craziness, I should let you know there are plenty of other wacky marriage stories out there. In June of last year, a woman from Brazil married her life-size rag doll in a ceremony that was attended by 250 people. Apparently, the rag doll is named Marcelo. And according to the woman, Marcelo is a great husband because, again, quote, he doesn't fight and he doesn't argue and he just understands me. In a similarly delusional tale, in April of last year, a British woman married her cat in order to keep future landlords from separating her from her beloved pet. The cat is named India, and the woman was quoted after the ceremony as saying, I had nothing to lose and everything to gain, so I married my cat! Exclamation mark! I recited vows under the universe that no man will ever tear myself and India apart. And Then there's a more recent story that was in the news just a couple of weeks ago. A prominent social media influencer announced that she had married herself. Apparently this is actually a trend. According to the BBC, soligamy, or self-marriage, is an increasingly popular fad. In the case of this particular social media influencer, however, self-marriage did not turn out so great. Less than 24 hours after marrying herself, she announced she was considering divorce. Indeed, I'm telling you, truth is stranger than fiction. And the fact that these stories exist says a lot about the way our culture views marriage. Now, to be fair, I suspect that all of these alleged marriages were more publicity stunts than actual claims to, be, to marriage. Furthermore, none of them were legally binding marriages as far as I know, which also speaks to the tension getting nature of each of these ceremonies. But having acknowledged that, I still think these stranger-than-fiction stories are instructive in helping us to understand how our culture views marriage. Namely, it seems like we're under the impression that we can define marriage in any way we want, and we can craft marriage to mean whatever we want it to mean. Now obviously the examples I gave here are pretty extreme in nature, and I doubt that anyone would make an argument, at least anyone in this one room would make an argument that one can legitimately marry a tree or a rag doll or a cat or themselves. But the principle underneath those examples is real. As recent Supreme Court decisions and federal legislation would attest, we think that we have the right as humans to decide what marriage should look like. We think we can define marriage however we want and fashion it in whatever way we think is appropriate as our pastors today will remind us, marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. We are not the designers of marriage. God is. And as such, he's the one who gets to determine the parameters of what marriage looks like. But having said that, here's what you need to understand from the very beginning this morning. His parameters are good. They're designed for our flourishing and because he loves us. As we've said time and again in the book of Genesis, God's design for the world is not meant to limit our freedom, but rather it's meant to maximize our joy. And so my goal this morning is simply to point to God's design in the hope that we can indeed maximize our joy. The more we understand and embrace God's design for marriage, the more convinced I am that our joy will increase. That's the goal this morning, that our joy would increase because we better understand God's design. So that said, let's stand. Out of reverence for the reading of God's word, just two verses this morning, Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. Just two verses here, two verses that are packed with some significance though for sure. So verses 24 and 25, words will be on the screen, you can follow along in your own Bibles or you can just listen as I read, but two verses, Genesis 2 starting in verse 24, the word of God says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So last week, if you're with us, you know that we looked at Genesis 2, 18 to 23 and discussed the idea of God creating us male and female. And we talked about how that was part of God's good design for us. But before we did that, we acknowledged that the issue of gender is very much debated in our culture today. And so we talked last week, why are we addressing this issue? It's in scripture. And we also talked about how we wanted to address this issue, which is to say we wanted to handle it with grace and truth. Now given the topic for today, it seems to me we probably need to pause again, like we did last week, and do something similar. Because as much as gender is a hot topic in our culture, and it is, our topic today, marriage might be even hotter. Furthermore, while many of you personally know someone who's confused by God's design for gender, almost everyone is personally affected in some deep and meaningful ways by discussion about marriage. In other words, when we talked about gender last week, that was personal for some of you. When we talk about marriage this morning, it will be personal for almost everyone, whether it be issues of divorce, or adultery, or homosexuality, or dysfunctional marriages, or even the way we view singleness. God's design for marriage touches on almost all of those things, or it does touch on all of those things. So when it comes to the topic of marriage, the stove burns hot for almost everyone. Anytime the stove burns hot, the possibility of offense is real. So hear me from the beginning. My goal this morning is the same as it was last week and the same as it is every week. I want to simply be faithful to teach what God's Word says and to do so in a way that is full of grace and truth. I fully recognize that the topic of marriage is one that brings emotions to the forefront and with those emotions, again, come the possibility of offense. But my goal this morning, again, as I said last week when we were talking about gender, is not to poke the bear or get everyone riled up here or needlessly hurt those who are already hurting. Or on the other end of the spectrum, my goal is not to tickle itching ears or appease the cultural gods or avoid difficult topics. Rather, my goal, and it's the same every single Sunday, is to try to be faithful to teach the Word of God. As Christians, we believe the Bible is authoritative for our lives and the ultimate arbiter of what's right and true. As Christians, when we're trying to decide what is right, what is true, we don't determine what's right by taking our cues from the culture. We don't determine what's true by looking at opinion polls, and we certainly don't view ourselves to be the ultimate authority. We don't ask the question, well, how do I feel, because that's what determines what's true. You now, as Christians, we submit to the authority of this book because we believe it is indeed God's word. Now, that said, there may be times where we don't like what God's word says, but when that's the case, the issue, hear me, is always with us, always, and never with the word of God. So perhaps some of what we talked about this morning will be a tough pill for some of you to swallow, depending upon your own personal experience or your own personal views. But the fact that Scripture is sometimes tough to swallow should not surprise us because sin has warped our view of the world. But listen, just because we have a warped view of the world and thus sometimes don't always agree with what the Bible says doesn't mean we have a license to change the authoritative Word of God. When I read something in scripture that I don't like initially, in that moment the word is serving as a mirror to my soul. It's revealing areas in which my views need to be conformed to his. By the way, it doesn't go the other way. We don't read scripture to try to confirm our views to his, or try to get him to conform his views to ours. We read scripture because we want to be conformed to his view. But here's what I hope you understand this morning. I've already touched on this, but I think it's crucial. God's word and his design are good. And they bring joy. We're not free to tamper with the authority of God's word. But hear this. If we really understood the world properly, we wouldn't want to anyway. Because God's design is always for our best. It leads to our flourishing. Now because there are times, because our, our, our view of the world is sometimes warped, there will be times where the word of God is like a hammer to our hard hearts. Or it's like a sword cutting through our sinful disposition. But at the end of the day, the Word of God is more precious than gold and silver. It brings joy and life and satisfaction. It's like the drink of cold water that we desperately needed but didn't even know that we did. So listen, that's how I'm coming at this passage this morning. I'm coming as a friend offering other friends a drink of refreshment. I have no desire this morning to be anyone over the head with God's design for marriage. But I have every desire for each of us to know the joy of living in His design. And that's what we're trying to do this morning. We're trying to rediscover the beauty of his design. So having said that, then let's get back to the text. There are three truths about marriage I want you to see today. Two of them are directly in the text in Genesis 2, and then the third will require a little bit of biblical theology where we expand our view about what the rest of the Bible teaches about marriage. I think it's important for us to see all three. So let's start with truth number one. Marriage truth number one. Marriage is God's good idea. Marriage is God's good idea. Now as is the case with gender many have been recently making the claim that marriage is a social construct in other words it's something that we created as humans some have even gone so far as to suggest that marriage is a tool of oppression created by women or excuse me created by men to subdue women but it's clear here in Genesis 2 that from the beginning marriage has been God's idea in fact verse 24 here's what it says therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh Now, lest there be any confusion whatsoever about the origins of verse 24, when Jesus teaches on marriage in Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis 2.24, and he attributes the quote to God. In other words, the teaching of verse 24 is not the product of a human author or the product of a human narrator or the product of a human editor. The idea that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two would become one flesh, this is God's idea. Now, in saying that, I think there are two additional pieces of contextual information, meaning the context surrounding Genesis 2.24, that we need to wrap our minds around in order to understand this idea that marriage is God's very good idea. So, first, I want you to notice this. The proclamation of verse 24 takes place before sin enters the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 3, which we'll turn our attention to next week, sin enters the world and it messes up everything. The fall as it's commonly referred to, brought untold destruction and chaos to our world. And it still affects us every single day. But listen, it's crucial for us to understand something this morning. Marriage was not instituted after the fall as a concession to a broken world. Rather, it's been part of God's good design from the very beginning. When God steps back at the end of day six and looks at his creation and declares it to be very good, marriage is part of the very good equation and it's vital that we understand this marriage was not plan b after plan a went astray marriage has been a part of god's very good design from the beginning and so i think that's one thing we need to understand about the context here of genesis 2 as it relates to this notion that marriage is god's good idea the marriage was instituted before the fall or marriage was instituted before the fall. second contextual piece Throughout Genesis 1 and 2, the overarching emphasis has been on God's extravagant provision and blessing and kindness to his creation. I think we sometimes have this idea that God is a disinterested creator. Like the proverbial watchmaker, he just winds up creation and then he steps back and removes himself from the picture. But actually, that's the exact opposite of what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. In God's first interaction with mankind, all the way back in Genesis 1, The first thing he does is blesses them. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the rest of chapters 1 and all the way through chapter 2. In the creation story, God is not a disinterested watchmaker, nor is he a grumpy, authoritative figure waiting to squash his creation, waiting for them to mess up so he can just crush them. No, instead in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see again and again is God is lavish in his generosity, He delights in his creation. He's intimately involved in the process of making all things. And he loves to bless. And he especially loves to bless those made in his image. And actually, just on a personal note, I'll say this. This has been one of the most striking realities for me in studying Genesis 1 and 2 these last two months. It's been beyond encouraging for me to see the emphasis on the character of God in the first two chapters of Genesis. That he loves to bless his people that he's lavish in his generosity. The reason this has been so encouraging for me personally is because as we've been preaching through Genesis 1 and 2, my personal family life has not gotten any easier. In fact, even this week, Tanya had some significant setbacks in her health to the point that I had to make an unexpected trip to Rochester in the middle of the week so I could be with her in the emergency room. So this has not been an easy stretch for us. But what I'm thankful for is that as we've been going through this extended difficulty in our family, we've been preaching through Genesis 1 and 2. And God has reminded me through his word over and over and over again in these first two chapters that he loves to bless and he loves to provide for his people. It's been encouraging for me because it's reminded me this is his character. I think when most of us think about Genesis 1 and 2, they think about the debates surrounding the age of the earth. Or they think about modern controversies involving topics like gender or marriage. But having spent nine weeks studying Genesis 1 and 2 in depth, those are not the things that I think about when I think about Genesis 1 and 2. I don't find myself thinking most about the age or order of creation. I don't, think my, I don't find myself thinking most about God's design for marriage or gender. Now, I care about those things. I'm preaching about one of them this morning. But having lived in Genesis 1 and 2 for two months now, what I find myself thinking most about is the Creator. I find myself thinking about His kindness, His generosity, His provision, His love and care for those created in His image. His beautiful design for creation that is intended to maximize our joy. That's the background for the declaration here in Genesis 2.24. And listen, if you read Genesis 2.24, apart from that background, apart from understanding God's kindness, his generosity, the goodness of his design, then it's possible you will miss God's heart for marriage. God's design for marriage is not an arbitrary hoop to jump through. God does not say what he does in Genesis 2.24 so that a couple thousand years later we could have great debates on social media. No, what he's doing here is extending his kindness toward us. He's showing us his good design because he loves us. And listen, the goodness of his design is even seen in the way the passage ends in verse 25. And verse 25 tells us that the man and woman were both naked and were not ashamed. We're not meant to read that verse in light of modern taboos about not wearing clothing or modern motivations for not wearing clothing. We're simply meant to understand that sin had not yet entered the world, and thus everything was good. There was no need to be ashamed. There was no need to hide. There was no need to cover anything up. God's creation was very good. And the point I'm making this morning is that marriage is part of that very good creation. From the beginning, marriage has been God's good idea. I think it's important we understand this, in particular, because for many of us, even in this room potentially, some of us have a bad taste in our mouth about marriage. Maybe you're in a marriage right now that's unhealthy. Or maybe your parents' marriage was or is unhealthy. Or maybe there's divorce somewhere in your background. Or divorce in the background is someone you love. Or maybe there's some other reason that marriage just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. The point is, when some of you think of marriage, you don't think of it as God's good design. But what you need to understand from Genesis 2 is that marriage is part of God's good design. And just because you've had a negative experience with marriage doesn't change that fact. Think about it this way. When I was in college, I would usually go to Sport Clips or some other place, discount haircut place, to get my haircut, And most of the time that worked out fine for me. Because my haircut has basically been the same since I was 10 years old. There's not a lot of maintenance going on here, all right? But one occasion in college, I just got stuck with the wrong haircutter. And she messed it up. And in particular, she took up my sideburns to the point that my friends described me as having reverse sideburns going past my hairline. Needless to say, my friends were relentless in dogging me. And I have to say, they were justified to do so. It was a terrible haircut. But here's the thing. Just because I had a terrible haircut does not mean that haircuts themselves are bad. The problem wasn't that haircuts are a bad idea. The problem was I had a bad haircut. In the same way, I would say this. Just because you've had a bad experience with marriage doesn't mean that marriage itself is the problem. It just means that you had a bad experience. Marriage itself is part of God's good design. It's his idea, and it's very good. And this is the first thing that we learn about marriage in Genesis 2. Marriage truth number two. God has a particular design for marriage. He has a particular design for marriage. Again, let me read verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, at this point, we just have to be honest. We just have to acknowledge the elephant in the room here. Most people do not have a problem with the notion that marriage is God's idea. But what they do have a problem with, and in fact, what some in our culture absolutely despise, is the idea that God has a particular design for marriage. But God's particular design for marriage is inescapable. And it's not just inescapable here in Genesis 2. Jesus himself reiterates this same design for marriage in both Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And that's significant because it confirms to us that God's design for marriage is as laid out here in Genesis 2.24, is not just specific for a certain time frame, i.e. in the garden, but rather it's a creation ordinance that is in effect for all time, including today. As the creator of marriage, God has every right to regulate what he creates, and that's exactly what he does here in Genesis 2.24. He has a particular design for marriage, and that's what he communicates to us in this verse. Now, make no mistake about it, this design is controversial, at least in our culture. And if we're honest, probably in most cultures throughout history. But despite the controversy that may exist regarding God's design, I think the most loving thing we can do is still point to the design. To use another illustration, if I invented a pill that could cure cancer, but the only way that pill was effective effective was if you took it in a certain way it would not be unloving for me to communicate this is the way to take the pill. Let's just say for the sake of illustration, the best way to take this cancer pill was to take it orally through the mouth with eight ounces of water. If a subgroup of people raised up who are convinced, well actually, we think the best way to take the pill is through your ear, or to snort it up our nose, or to take it orally without water, orange juice instead, no matter how passionate those people may be, or how committed they may be to their viewpoint, if I'm the one who invented the pill, and I know how it best works, it would not be unkind of me or uncharitable for me to say, well, actually, this is the way it works best. On the contrary, I think you could make the argument, I think it would be correct, it would be unloving for me not to speak up. In the same way, if God is the one who designed marriage, and he designed it to work in a specific way, it's not unloving for God to tell us, this is my design. And as his messengers, it's not unloving for us to communicate that design either. Now, we need to be sensitive and understand that people have different opinions. And we need to be loving in the way that we communicate. But at at the end of the day, the most loving thing we can do is to communicate this is the way God has designed things. As I said earlier, we don't have the license to tamper with God's authoritative word. But even if we did have that license, and we don't, but even if we did, we wouldn't want to because God's design is always best. So I think the best thing for me to do and the most loving thing for me to do is just straightforwardly describe his design as it's laid out here in verse 24. In particular, there are three aspects of his design I just want to highlight here. First, marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. Now notice, God does not bring to Adam another Adam. Nor does God bring to Adam multiple Eves, or for that matter, multiple Adams. He brings to Adam one woman, Eve. And his instruction going forward, which again is reiterated by Jesus, is that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Not wives, not husband, wife. As we said last week, men and women have different gift sets, different skills, different temperaments, and those differences complement one another, like a puzzle piece. And marriage is the stage where those complementary differences are most clearly seen. God's design for gender was intentional and part of his goodness toward us. And that design is exhibited in marriage when one man and one woman come together. Listen, I know there's a big movement right now to say that love is love. And we should let people marry whoever they want to marry. But not only does that way of thinking have logical problems. For example, we wouldn't say it's okay for an adult to marry a child or a person to marry an animal. More than that, that idea that people should be able to marry whoever they want misses God's design for marriage. God designed marriage in a particular way for particular purposes. He wanted to communicate the complementary nature of man and woman, which is why he designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. And anytime we depart from that design, we miss out on joy. To give an example from the Bible, in the Old Testament there are many polygamous marriages, In fact, many of the so-called heroes of the faith in the Old Testament had multiple wives. And yet, every time we see that in Scripture, it is always presented in a negative light. You cannot give one example from the Old Testament where you say, well, that was a good idea. No, every time when a man's married to multiple wives, it always turns out poorly and causes all kinds of trouble. So listen, any time we depart from God's design, in whatever fashion we depart from it, we forfeit joy. So this is one aspect of God's design for marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Secondly, marriage is designed for a husband to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Again, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now in ancient Israel, when a man got married, he usually continued to live in or near his parents' home. So, the idea here in verse 24 that a man should leave his father and mother is likely not talking necessarily about physically leaving. Rather, it's a state of mind. What's being communicated here is that there's a shift in priorities, there's a forsaking of one relationship to give more attention to another. When a man gets married, his primary allegiance is no longer to his parents, but instead his allegiance is to his wife. The same is true for the wife. Her allegiance is no longer to her parents but rather now to her husband. By the way, this has implications, obviously, for married couples. That our marriage relationship takes priority over extended family. But it also has implications, not just for married couples, but also for the parents of married couples. Let me say it this way. If you have a married child, and your actions in any way are driving a wedge between your child and their spouse, you are contradicting God's design for marriage. You're not letting your child go. So married couples... Your marriage is to take priority over your extended family. Parents, your job is to help your married child live in that design. Don't be the armchair quarterback who critiques your child's spouse at every turn. Instead, be an advocate who encourages the priority of the marriage relationship. Third, third piece of design here. Marriage is designed to be a one-flesh union. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, certainly the idea of a one-flesh union hints at the unique sexual relationship between man and woman. In fact, 1 Corinthians alludes to this. But I think it's much more than just that. A man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, we're told. He's not to let go of her. The idea of holding fast suggests permanence. I think the same idea is being communicated in the idea of a one-flesh union. That's certainly the way Jesus interpreted the phrase. In both Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus quotes from Genesis 2 and argues against divorce on the basis of a one-flesh union. What God has joined together, Jesus says, let man not separate. Now, as Jesus points out in Matthew 19, there may be times where divorce is biblically permissible. But divorce is never part of God's good design. God's good design for marriage involves a one-flesh union that persists. So let me just be honest here. I, I know that maybe some of you in this room are possibly in tough marriages right now. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, it'd just be easier to throw in the towel. But let me encourage you, do not get up. Do not give up. If you need help, get help. If you're physically in danger, you need to leave and get to a place of safety. And again, in some instances, there may be biblical cause for divorce. But oftentimes, the reason why people give up on marriage and get divorced is not because they have actual biblical reason, but rather because marriage is just hard. Two sinful people living together will make a mess of things, but God's design is a one flesh union. Again, to quote Jesus, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now having said that, here's where we need to be honest. God's design for marriage is lofty. His expectations are high. And none of us, I would argue, have perfectly lived in that design at all times. And when you expand his design out to include his design for human sexuality, which I think again is being hinted at in verse 24, that sex is to take place between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. When you expand it out to that vision, then you realize all of us have failed at multiple points. In the areas of marriage and sexuality, to one degree or another, all of us have failed to live in the light of God's design. Whether it be sex outside of marriage marriage, or pursuing homosexuality, or engaging in an adulterous relationship while married, or pursuing an unbiblical divorce, or lusting after a person we're not married to, or even failing to fulfill our biblical roles in marriage. All of us have fallen short of God's design. Genesis 2:24 leaves none of us unscathed. In Genesis 2:24, we have a beautiful picture, no doubt, of God's design, but we also have a sobering reminder that we do not always live up to God's standards. But hear this: there is good news. In fact, the reason why we're here is because of that good news. And that good news is that Jesus came to rescue sinners like us. He came to save us from our sinful and rebellious ways. And interestingly enough, not only does our failure to live in light of God's design for marriage point us to our need for Christ, but marriage itself points to Jesus. And that brings us to our third and final truth about marriage. And this is one where we have to expand and do a little biblical theology. And the third marriage truth is simply this. Marriage is a shadow. It's a shadow. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. To understand the full beauty of what's happening here in Genesis 2, we need to understand the totality of what the Bible teaches about marriage. And what the rest of the Bible teaches about marriage is that human marriage, marriage between one man and one woman, is the lesser marriage, pointing us to a greater marriage to come. Maybe you've been aware of this before, but the Bible both starts and ends with a wedding. In Genesis 2, the wedding or the marriage is between Adam and Eve. In the book of Revelation, which Jim read earlier, we have the marriage feast of the Lamb, in which Christ is united to his bride, the church. And that's the thing I think you need to most understand about marriage this morning. Marriage is a picture of the greater marriage that is still to come. In Ephesians 5, Paul explicitly makes this connection. He argues that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, He says, in the same way that Christ loved the church, husbands are to love their wives. In the same way that the church submits to Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands. In other words, what Paul is arguing in Ephesians 5 is that human marriage is the lesser marriage pointing us to the greater marriage. And this is why, in Matthew 22, Jesus says there will be no marriage in the resurrection. It's because when Christ returns, there'll be no more need for the shadow. We'll instead be able to experience the substance. And the substance is Jesus' great love for his bride, the church. Which, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that would include you. Listen, I love my wife more than any person on this earth, and I would do anything for her. But that love that I have for Tanya is meant to help me better understand the great love that Jesus has for me. And ultimately, the greater love that he has for us, the church, his bride, The lesser marriage, and this is key, is meant to point us to the greater marriage. And actually, the reason why Christians care so much about God's design for marriage and the institution of marriage, sometimes we get critiqued, why do you care so much? Well, the reason we care is not just because God's word lays out for us what marriage is, and that would be reason enough to care, by the way, but we also care because the institution and design God has given us for marriage point us to Jesus. Jesus is is the groom. The church is the bride. And when we try to change or redefine marriage, we try to lessen its importance, we're failing to paint an accurate picture of the greater wedding. Marriage points us to the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for his bride, the church. But he rose three days later, that if anyone would trust in him one day, they could participate in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Understanding this, by the way, helps us to keep marriage in proper perspective. Think about this if you're married, your spouse was never meant to be your savior or your satisfier or the one who fulfills you. I know there's a popular movie line where some man shouts out to a woman, You complete me. That is not the picture of biblical marriage. We are never meant to be completed by our earthly spouse, we are meant to be satisfied by Jesus alone. And if you put weight on your spouse to be your savior or to be the one who fulfills you, you are putting a weight on them that they cannot bear. Furthermore, given its shadowy nature, marriage is not a prerequisite for earthly joy. This is important. This is important. The most satisfied person who ever walked on the face of this planet was single. Jesus had no earthly bride in his time on the earth, and yet he was perfectly content because he trusted the Father's provision, and he knew the greater marriage was still to come. So if you're single and you're here this morning, please do not see your singleness as an obstacle to joy or a sign that you're somehow less important. We care about human marriage, the lesser marriage, because it points to the greater marriage. And so if you're single, know this, you're not missing out on the substance. The shadow maybe, but not the substance. The substance of marriage is still to come. The substance of marriage is that the church shall be united to the groom, Christ. All that to say then, by way of summary, let me just say this. In light of the three marriage truths we talked about this morning, here's my encouragement for you today. Number one, marriage is God's idea. So embrace that good idea. Give thanks to God that he's created the institution of marriage. Number two, God has a particular design for marriage. So repent in areas where you have departed from that design. Reorient your life to live in that design And encourage those around you to also follow that design. Third, marriage is a shadow, so don't miss the substance. Marriage matters because it points to the marriage supper to come. So turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and live for him. Marriage is not an end in and of itself. It points us to the great love of Christ. So my greatest encouragement for you today is actually this. Look to Jesus. I think that's what marriage is meant to point us to. Look to Jesus, because marriage is the shadow, but Jesus is the substance. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for a challenging passage, no doubt, especially in light of everything that's going on in our culture, but also a passage that we desperately need. Like I said earlier, I think what's happening here in Genesis 2 is like a cold drink of water that refreshes us that we didn't even know we needed. And so we pray this morning that we would embrace what your word says that we would embrace the mystery of how all this works in terms of one flesh union and all that, and that we would see that you are a good God who cares for us. You care for us in all kinds of ways. One of them is by providing the institution of marriage. But we pray that we would have the courage to hold fast to what you lay out, but also the grace to communicate this to others and to point them to the greater marriage still to come. The only hope we have is not that a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The hope we have is that Jesus died for his bride, the church. We pray that we would lift that hope high. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand for our benediction now from Romans chapter 11. As Jim mentioned earlier during SBS today, if you're interested, Our mission speaker will be here. Actually, I'm going to be interviewing him and and asking some questions about what they're doing for missions in Texas, and maybe how uh, we as a church can be thinking better about missions. So we'd love to have you stay for that, but the benediction this morning comes from Romans 11. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week and drive safely.